Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Artemis, and in today's episode, we're travelling back to a particularly modern bit of history to better understand the British Army in the post-9-11 world. Simon Aikham is a British writer. Born in Cambridge, England, he held a gap year commission in the British Army before going to university. In his book, The Changing of the Guard, he returns to the army after a decade to see how the institution has changed, and in particular, to question how and why it failed in its objectives in Iraq and Afghanistan. In this episode, we explore the culture inside the army in the early noughties, as well as unpicking the relationship between politicians and military leaders. I also wanted to mention that I actually know Simon. I work with him as his producer on the Always Take Notes podcast, which he is the co-host of, along with Rachel Lloyd. Always Take Notes aims to demystify every aspect of the world of writing. Their in-depth interviews change the narrative around success and, crucially, explore how people have made a living from their creative pursuits. So that's Always Take Notes if you're interested. Please go check it out. But in the meantime... Here's my conversation with Simon Aikham. Simon, thank you so much for joining us on Travels Through Time. We've had this in the works for quite a while, and I'm really excited to have you on my podcast. We know each other from, well, we've known each other for a very long time, and obviously we work together on your podcast, Always Take Notes. But now I feel like the tables have turned and you're on my podcast, so thanks for coming on. <laughs> I've, I've also got, I've, I've got a strong feeling of, of table turning as well, but it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And um, yeah, great, great to be on, on the other end of the microphone. Yeah, really delighted to be, to be on the show, so thank you oh, for having brilliant. me. brilliant. Well, we're, we're going to be talking about a book that you wrote a few years ago now. How many years ago was it that The Changing of the Guard came out? Well, we're in, we're in 2023 now, so it came out almost exactly two years ago. Yes. Yeah. So I thought we could just start by talking a bit about the book's very fraught publication history, because I think this is, A, it's a really interesting story. And in my mind, it really tells us something about this book. It tells us something, it almost kind of feels like a perfect um, reflection of what you were trying to, what, what you were writing about in the book. So maybe you could just tell listeners a bit about, about that. Yeah, of course. So the book is about the the British Army since 9-11. That's the subtitle. And the origin of the project really was that I had spent a year in the army on a program that was variously called a gap year commission or a short service limited commission, which was when you did a, a year in the army between school and university, you had to pass the the officer selection programs at quite a high level. And then I think they tried to put together a cohort of you know, people who would not necessarily come back to the army, but who would do interesting things with their lives. And uh, they would spend time in the army and go and do what they did. And so I had done this in 2003, 2004. And so it was just after the invasion of Iraq, um, before the Afghanistan commitment had really started. And on those gap year programs, they they didn't send you on operations. You were, you were very scantily trained. And so I was in Germany, mostly, where a lot of the army was still based at that time. But it did mean, and I only realized this later, that I had a kind of snapshot of where the institution was at what was, in retrospect, quite a significant period of time. So that was for, for less than a year when I was 18, and I went to university and I became a journalist, and I worked in the US and in Africa. And when I came back, I had this kind of interest in, in what had become of the army, I suppose. I realized it had been 10 years 
since I'd had this experience and that the army had been involved in conflict almost entirely through that time, but that there'd been huge change and that I'd had this, this sort of weird experience that I'd had in my late teens meant that I had a firsthand perspective on where it had been. And I was able to arrange to go to Afghanistan as a journalist. And so I got a glimpse of what had what the kind of end state was. And so the idea for the book was that I would, I would write about how the wars had changed the army. Uh, but the kind of interest from the beginning was to, to write a book that would not exclusively appeal to people who uh, were interested in the army or had been in the army, but would really be a book about Britain told through the lens of the army. And the book uh, sold at auction, which means that there were multiple publishers interested in, in 2015. And I went with a, an imprint of Penguin Random House. And I spent three years writing it, not full time. I was doing magazine work in parallel, but I, I interviewed several hundred people, about 260. And, you know, there was, there was no doubt that my reporting was, um, was ruffling feathers in the army. I mean, undoubtedly, these wars had not gone well and it, there had been very limited accountability. But to cut a, a long and extremely convoluted story short, um, the book was meant to be published in 2019. And um, shortly, I had had a visiting fellowship at an organization at Oxford University called um, the Changing Character of War Program when I'd uh, been writing the book. And the head of the program, who was, I'm not going to name him here, although his name is, is in the public domain. Um, he was a sort of smart and, and well-read academic, but he was very close to the military. And when it had become clear that my book was critical of the army in some ways. Uh, he refused to see me. He wouldn't have anything to do with me. I'd eventually forced a, a meeting with him um, because I'd paid fees to attend. And it was just clear that he, in my view at least, was pretty conflicted by how close he was to the military. And I'd, I'd had nothing more to do with him. But eventually he wrote to the, my publishers before the book was, was due to be published. And someone had CC'd him to an email and he told them they were going to get sued and all this kind of thing. And the publishers freaked out and they... They did something which completely flabbergasted me as a, as a journalist, actually. They told me that they would only publish the book if everyone in it agreed in writing to everything that was written about them, which is, you know, that's generally called copy approval. It's not, it's not done in, in respectable journalism. And they also demanded that I give the, uh, the manuscript to the Ministry of Defence and let them edit it. And there are books about the army where, where writers trade access to serving military people, in, and they trade that by letting the, the military authorities have purview on the book before publication but again i thought that was a very problematic way to work so i wasn't willing to do that so this was not at all how the book had been sold and um you know there was endless negotiation to try and sort this out but it was clear that they'd made a decision they weren't going to do this and again they, they cancelled my contract they asked me to pay all my money back but i am quite stubborn and i was not going to put up with this and I gathered a coalition of press freedom organizations who wrote to Random House, which alarmed them, but didn't change their position. And I then gave the material to The Guardian, who wrote about it. And then at, at, at a ballsy Australian publisher called Scribe, who'd, who'd been involved in a similar situation before and published a book that a British major would not, stepped in and wanted to do it. And again, then a huge additional fight ensued to get the copyright back for the book, which was difficult. And I, all the money from Scribe had to go to, to buy out Random House. So, you know, this was, this was about two, like two years of, of time that it took. But the end result of that, and it was extraordinarily stressful, was that when the book was published, it had an extraordinary head of steam behind it. So it was reviewed everywhere, uh, praised and damned, very widely accepted. And I think interestingly, and perhaps tellingly, Although I'd been told that you know my book was unpublishable legally and everything, it stirred absolutely no legal trouble at all. You know there is a there's a statute of limitation on uh, on libel in Britain and that passed and you know no one no one sued. So it was 
it was a very difficult birth. But it's interesting also that this is actually the third book about the army that a very similar thing happened to in 10 years. So this is not um, exclusively about me. It's a wider situation. I'm sure we'll talk about this more as we go into your chosen year and the scenes. But you mentioned that the, it was the moment that this academic became aware that the book was going to be critical of the army. But that's when he decided to kind of start working against you or to withdraw contact from you. Why is it so hard to criticise the British army? I think there's kind of two two layers of this. So I think the first is specific to my project. So, you know, there is no doubt that, you know, I had kind of annoyed almost all of the British Army by the end of, of putting this book together, partly because of when you are writing nonfiction, you know, a huge amount of what I was doing was, you know, you have to balance and weigh varying accounts of what has happened. And, and in a situation where there has been a success, what you often have to do is to weigh people claiming share of the credit. But when things have gone badly, as, as had the case of these conflicts, it was a huge kind of mutual blame game between people that I had to do. And you can't do that really without, um, you know, having quite vexed interactions with people. I certainly have you know, learned through the book better practice and better ways to do things. You know, I could have, could have done things differently. But there's no doubt that my reporting stirred a lot of, a lot of disquiet. Um, and I think, you know, with this guy, guy at Oxford, I think, you know, his position was that his, his kind of professional standing was dependent on his relationship with the military in many ways. And, you know, I think he probably felt that I had, you know, that, that he, he, he had to defend himself, I suppose. But that's all the kind of thing that's very micro to, to my book. I think the more macro thing, which is in some ways the more interesting question is, is what you've zoned in on, which is that we have this, this aura that we erect around the army of this kind of uncriticizable institution you know that must be treated in glory and what is ironic about that is that that is not actually a view that is shared by most people who are within the army you know or actually who are in the institution they they work in this environment and they know that it's it's imperfect as all human entities are and that it's it's popular by people who are imperfect as all humans are but it's maintained by a kind of Greek chorus of institutions and individuals that exist outside who I often kind of imagine, and this is this is not true, but it has some truth in it, of sort of slightly fusty men who might have once wanted to have been soldiers but were not, and who are very into, you know, dissecting the finer details of the Battle of the Bulge or, you know, some ancient thing like like that. Actually, that wasn't a, a British campaign. Um, but, you know, who, who regard themselves as kind of keepers of the flame, as it were, and like leap, leap to the defense of the institution reflexively. But also the reason that that happens partially, I think, is, is because, and, and to put this bluntly, our army is not that important to us at the moment, right? You know, we are not involved, nor have been for decades, involved in a situation that's existential and where the, the the sake of the country is dependent on the the, com the competence and performance of the military. And I think, you know, if you look, I write in the book about how the Israelis regard their army, which is in a much less kind of put it on a pedestal way. But I think probably an interesting argument here is about Ukraine, you know, now where you have seen, certainly there've been elements of, of lionization and, and things like that. But I think you know, I'm not an expert in that and I haven't been, but I, I think, you know, if, if you know, the, the existential stake of your country depends on the performance of your military, you have a very clear-eyed and realistic view of things that when it's small wars far away, perhaps doesn't mm. happen. Yeah, it's so interesting. Well, I think 
without further ado, it's time to go to your chosen year that you'd like to travel through time to. So Simon, if you could travel through time to any year, what year would you choose? So I'd like to go back to 2006, which is, I suppose, a pivotal year for, for the army, but also it's interesting for, for me in that I that was the year that I turned 21. And I, as I wrote in the book, I suppose this was a subject I was drawn to because a lot of the protagonists were people of my generation. But I think it's, it's interesting and in what I hope we'll be able to do in this conversation is we're going to be talking about fighting that the army was engaged in externally and with other people, but also fighting that was going on within the army as an institution, which is which is kind of what I wanted to explore. So this is about an internal battle as well as an external battle. And before we go into your first scene, first of all, I, I just wanted I think it's worth mentioning this is the first time on Travels Through Time that we've gone back to a year in history as this is the most modern year we've ever traveled through time to. And really? it's also the only year oh, we've ever okay. traveled to that I was alive for. So that's quite exciting for me. Okay. But how I, I, I don't want to know. <laughs> I, did, I did consider sharing it and then I thought for... I'll keep it to myself. Um, okay. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, uh, what are some of the challenges of writing a piece of history about such a period that's so recent? Most of the historians that we speak to on the podcast are having to um, sometimes write about um, periods in history which are hundreds if not thousands of years ago and they're having to really imagine um, who these people were what they might have said to one another um, and what their lives were like and what these events how these events might have gone and obviously that is not as much the case if you're writing about something that happened 20 years ago um, what was that process like? I think it's a it's a great question and I suppose the question is is it history right that was something I was constantly wondering in the book is this history or is it journalism that you're doing i also think um a really interesting word you used just then was imagine because i was adamant in this book that i wanted to write it as narrative you know i'd come up as a journalist in this kind of american tradition of narrative nonfiction, where you would use the the tools and the techniques of, of fiction but you would make no compromises in terms of factual accuracy that everything would be sourced and all of that and you know what i think is interesting when you read history broad brush particularly to use a slightly crass term popular history and particularly sort of military popular history is that people do imagine imagine or imaginary a lot of stuff and the way i was sort of writing the book is like if you're reading a book about the second world war and it talks about like the sweat dripping down someone's face it's like how do you know that is not you know that unless unless like that is there you you don't you don't know it's very difficult to, to pin this together and what what was a I, I faced both advantages and disadvantages, I think, at the time that I was doing it. So on the disadvantages, I had no access to official records, for instance. So all, all military official records would have sat, I think, under the 30-year rule. They were all archived. They were all secret. I, you know, I couldn't get that. But at the same time, I could almost always speak to protagonists. And I, I couldn't speak to people who were still... Officially, I couldn't speak to people who were still in the army because I wasn't within that kind of very tendentious, authorized book space. But you know, a lot of people had left. Um, a, a fair criticism of the book is it is excessively, you know, it is it is told through the perspective of the the Westerners there. I mean, there I made efforts to, you know, I, I spoke to some Iraqis and and things like that. But it's you know that is I think a, a a fair point. And you know there are books coming out about now about the Vietnam War, for example, that are genuinely reported from both sides. Mark Bowden has done one on the Battle of Hue. You know, it, it's starting to you know become possible the recent conflicts but that is difficult to do but but so i had this astonishing thing what you do you could find people who were there this is also conflicts that that there was this 
huge amount of digital material that that did exist but at the same time it also meant and, and it kind of touching what we discovered beforehand like the stakes are high and people care because most of the people are alive and i do i remember a again i wouldn't mention it but like a very famous british historian and i asked for advice when all the difficulties arose and he was like you know how on earth can you you know why are people so bothered or concerned about this and i felt like going like you you write about stuff that happened thousands of years ago you literally have no idea like you know this is the stakes are the stakes are high about this stuff but i i also think you know i thought about this quite a lot really because you know there is such a focus it's such an industry as it were of kind of second world war history and i i can't imagine anything less interesting than doing that now right like everyone's dead you can't go and interview pretty much you can't go and interview everyone sort of you know there's this vast historiography that you're you're raking over and it's also retreated so far into the past that it is quite easy to forget that this was a dreadful human experience in which many people you know died and were hurt and it turns into this sort of boy's own adventure thing which i find rather distasteful i find those books very compelling and i find i've read them found them very interesting but what i was I, I really wanted when I was writing this book to write something that was raw and acknowledge that, you know, there is a huge amount of suffering within war at the same time that there were people, you know, there were elements that people found exciting or thrilling or things like that. But, um, you know, it, 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 it is weird, that line between journalism and history. But I also find it sort of, you know, it, it's something, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that I read about in my book is is the sort of thing that, you know, about interpersonal issues between commanders and and all that sort of thing you know is stuff that is the meat of you know very establishment people writing about world war ii but it's just because that's so long ago that it's not controversial whereas you know for me for me this was but i sort of i, I mean again i think that's quite hard you know i sort of think it's more important like you know this was this is still a live issue right it's like you know you could you know whether the, the shell crisis of 1915 or whatever like fascinating and, and deeply you know significant at the time but it's a long time ago whereas whereas this matters but yeah you know it's certainly like you know military you know if you want to be like an establishment respectful military historian you've got to write about conflict where everyone's dead like that's the mm. that's the mm. way to it well let's get into your first scene because i think that actually kind of touches on some of the things that you were just describing. Would you like to tell us if we were in a particular location, if we were in a room or perhaps um, a region, where would we be in this first scene in 2006? So I'd like to take you to a tent in Camp Bastion in Helmand province in Afghanistan in 2006. And in the tent is a man called Jamie Loden, who is a company commander in the parachute regiment. And he is editing a video. And he is editing this video, which is taken or putting it together of footage that's been shot by soldiers in his unit, which is uh, the third battalion of the parachute regiment during the first British tour in southern Afghanistan. And to to explain what had been happening, that the, the army had you know, moved into Afghanistan while the Iraq deployment was still going on. Defence Secretary had said in a quote that is often misquoted, but the sense is there that you know, they would be happy to leave without firing a single shot in anger. And in the end, the first battle group fired half a million rounds. But then they make this film 
And what I was kind of fascinated about, and this film, which is, is known colloquially as The Rooftop and features a soundtrack by Eminem and a bit of poetry and stuff like that. And it becomes this incredibly potent artifact. But it's, it, you know, this is the early years of, I think YouTube is launched that year. And this is about a kind of whole new way that war is depicted. And it becomes this very, very aspirational thing. This is like why you go to Afghanistan. But the fascinating thing, and I interviewed this, this guy who put it together, is like, you know, he did this in half an hour in a tent at the end of the tour. It wasn't expected that this would be an artifact that would have such resonance. And so this is about, you know, it's part of a broader section in my book, but it's about the changing way that soldiers told their mm. stories. And could you describe a bit about what we see in the video? I think I'll include the, um, the link to it on YouTube on the page, uh, the relevant page on the website for this episode, um, so that people who are listening can go and watch it themselves. But could you just describe a bit about what we're, what we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think what's striking you know, in kind of internet history, as it were, is you realize firstly how quick the technological advancement with digital cameras has been. So this is, you know, mid-2000s amateur shot video, so it's blurry. It's also, a, it, it, its length is governed by the song, by, I think it's Lose yeah, Yourself it is. by, by Eminem. Is, yeah. um, I know, I know yeah, that we, we, couldn't, we couldn't quote it directly in the book because there'd be the whole like, copyright issues, which made it a bit difficult to do with that. But it's, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a music video, essentially. And it's, you've got to imagine that this, this company, which is a subunit of an infantry um, battalion, has been holding this small, isolated position in Afghanistan, being attacked over and over again. Um, and in some ways, I think some people bristle with this, you know, it's very, it's a very uneven fight, right? Like the, the, the paratroopers have on their side, the ability to call in aircraft and all this sort of thing. And essentially what, what they had done is, is demolish the town around them by, um, in order to stop themselves being overrun. But, you know, it is, um, the term is often used this kind of thing is, is war pornography, right? So, um, and what is fascinating about it is, is there's a very specific aesthetic that you're seeing in the film. And the term that the army has for this is alley, which is, um, means cool. Like it's an army term for cool. And the, the etymology of it is, I couldn't put it down in the book. I thought I'd heard one story it came from aluminium because uh, paratroopers have lighter weight mess tins to eat out. That's actually untrue. I got an amazing letter from a guy who must have been in his 80s who'd been in the Paris in the 1950s and said it's, you know, it's, it's a contraction of an Arabic word meaning shade, actually, from, you know, a lot of foreign language has seeped into British Army. But Ali means cool. And what is, I think, outsiders don't often appreciate about the army is like, this is an institution that is primarily, you know, it comprised of young men and young men really care about what will look cool. So there's a lot of stuff you see in the video, which is things like, People in flip, you know, firing their rifles, wearing flip flops, um, you know, wearing body armor over bare chests, and a lot of this is like you watch it and you think, ah, oh, they must be in such an austere and difficult situation, and that is true. They were, but what is also true is like this is, you know, they knew what they were doing. Like, you know, this is an, an aesthetic. It's a kind of youth within a very ordered institution. It is like a youth subculture that comes in there. And and what's sort of fascinating about this this notion of Ali is that the army freaked out about it. And there is a story, again, I tried to pin this down and couldn't, but you know, the fact that it's widely told, I think shows it has some heft, that some point after this tour in Afghanistan, a, a US general turned up at a British outpost in Afghanistan and said, you lot look like our, our, our army at the end of Vietnam. And suddenly the Brits were like, oh shit, you know, this is not a good aesthetic. And they suddenly cracked down and it's like, everyone had to shave and you know, not, not like look really alley. 
So, you know, what, what is fascinating about this is like you had this battle, this, this violent incident in Afghanistan, but, but via this new piece of communications technology, it becomes this artifact, which in itself, everyone who's going to Afghanistan will see. And then this becomes like the definition of what you want to do, because it's in, considered incredibly cool, like really, like extremely cool. But the kind of problem is that actually it's not really, you know, they demolished these small British outposts in 2006 demolished the towns they were in because the only way that they could stop being overrun was by calling in airstrike after airstrike. So they would like knock everything down. You know, this, you know, it, this was not the delicate population centered counterinsurgency that, you know, the army liked to talk about. But you, so you had this discrepancy between what people, soldiers and some commanders thought was cool or thought was aspirational and what the evidence of history might be was the most sensible way to do here so you had a mis mismatched set of incentives and in the book you and, and just now you've described it as a form of storytelling that soldiers do to themselves about themselves and you draw well and maybe comparison is the wrong word but you talk about you know how powerful the books that were written about the first world war were in the years immediately after the first world war and how that changed the uh changed the attitude towards the, the narrative, narrative exactly the narrative, changed the narrative yeah. about the first world war but that's those books are more cynical or realistic about the horrors of war, whereas this video, like you say, is cool. It's glor it's glorifying is an overused mm. word, but like it almost glorif it is glorifying war. Yeah, whether it's glorifying or not, it, it was glorified yeah. by lots of people who who watched it, certainly. I mean, I think that there is a really interesting question about how long it takes for the enduring cultural artifacts of a conflict to emerge. And I think Often the answer is about 10 years, right? So yeah, you, you alluded to what I, what I wrote about the First World War, which is the point that our, uh, the narrative that we still often, not exclusively among historians, but among the public have the First World War of like terrible waste, you know, slaughter, being stuck in the mud and everything in Flanders. That date, that was really kind of invented between 1928 and 1931. So in the immediate years after the First World War, people didn't generally think that it had been a terrible, pointless waste of human life. And that may be because it was so raw, you know, the level of suffering that had been created was so huge. But the classic example is that Field Marshal Haig, who is now, you know, I mean, there's a whole historical debate about him, um, but, you know, is often thought of as this kind of callous, you know, caricature of the kind of chateau general of the First World War who sent his men to his death. You know, a million people lined the streets of London for his funeral, right, in, in some, and sometime in the 1920s. And then these three, three or four books, so Memoirs of an Infantry Officer uh, in England, Undertones of War, also in the UK, all quite on the Western Front in Germany, and that, and then a play called Journey's End. And that sort of invents the First World War as a, the, the notion that we have of it. And if you look at Vietnam, you know, the, the enduring cultural relics of Vietnam are often sort of 10 years later. So if you think like when Apocalypse Now was made or when The Deer Hunter was made or Dispatches, Michael Pear's extraordinary book, comes out in the late 70s. And partly it's because, you know, there needs to be a time for the people not only to absorb their experiences, but also to gain access to these cultural institutions like publishers or filmmaking or, or stuff like that. But, but the, the point, yeah, that just returning to this thing, this thing in Afghanistan is this is, a, this is in the moment. This is like a, an immediate fast twitch cultural response to war. And I suppose an, a better analogy from the First World War would be, would be lyric poetry, right? Although perhaps this is more sort of Rupert Brooke than, than Wilfred Owen. If this video is one of the cultural artifacts produced by the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, if we can if we can put it in a similar kind of category of artifacts to, you know, Apocalypse Now, I mean, obviously on a different scale, 
what mm. does it tell us about those conflicts? What does it tell us about the British army? I think it tells you that in 2006, the opportunity to go and fire your rifle in anger was a tremendously exciting and in some ways intoxicating one for a lot of British soldiers. You know? because, so, so if you look at the, the paras who were the unit involved, they, their, their kind of for, formative formative experience in world, but in the last decades of the 20th century, their like gold standard of war story was the Falklands, right? So this conflict in 1982 that was short but intense, and, and these these elite units, elite infantry units in the British military, so the Parachute Regiment and the Royal Marines, conducted operations there that became mythological. So they had to you know, fight these close quarter infantry actions in you know, terrible weather, um, you know, march huge distances. And if you were in those units for the next 15 or 20 years, these were the stories you were brought up on, right? This is like what you were raised on. And it very quickly becomes myth because you know, most of the people who've left, have, who were there have left and everything. But you know, when that, so when that battalion went to Afghanistan in 2006, there would have been a handful, literally a handful of the very oldest people who'd been there in 1982. And, but beyond that, there would have been this whole generation who'd been raised of like what the unit did in 1982 was the absolute epitome of cool and aspiration and what we exist. And if now there is a chance to go and do that again, it must be seized. You know, it must. And there is a huge debate, very vexed debate, about to what extent the army and particularly the parachute regiment found a fight in Helmand in 2006 and to what extent they went looking for one. But I think that the more undeniable thing is that when it emerged that this was what was going on and what was was accessible to do, that that became hugely aspirational for a lot of the military. And another point that I, I look at in the book, you know, if, if one thinks about the, the YouTube war film, the way I, which is what I phrased it, the way I looked at that is, is the idea that it is an informal incentive structure. So, you know, it, people wanted to produce this, but it's not. And, and, and the army tolerated it, but it didn't encourage it. But at the same time, you had the gallantry medal system, right? The way people get awarded for that. And, and that awarded all the same behavior because, you know, people got medals for... And I, I look in detail at how medals work, the system and everything. So you had these, these kind of formal and informal systems that were shaping the behavior of of individuals and units and that were encouraging a form of behavior that was not only different to the kind of stated objective of what the institution was doing, but also to what history with a capital H would suggest might have been the most useful way to think to approach this. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between the army and politicians at this time? So when my book came out, interesting, you know, and it had these you know, very wide response and, and very polarized response as well. But the classic kind of line of attack against the book as well was this line that it is all the mm. politicians fault you know and that this is you know uh you know the soldiers don't have any choice about what they do and you know they were just sent there by stabbing about with politicians i mean interestingly a, a a rather smart military academic when a lot of this was going on quite quipped on twitter he's like ah oh, the stab in the back myth the first recourse of a defeated army since 1918 which is like you know that is glib and is not entirely true i think what is certainly true is that you know that we, we do live in a parliamentary democracy. Decisions are made by, by politicians. But the idea that the army as an institution and also individuals within the army as individuals have no agency about their action is, is just untrue. And it's been untrue since the advent of standing armies. And it's not the fault of anyone in these institutions. But the point is that you know, an army without tasks to do is an is a endangered species. Like it will, it will get cut. And you know, there's the, the, very clear evidence um, you know that the, the military has lobbied for maximum involvement in the Iraq campaign. You know, for to you know to expand the scale of Afghanistan. I I, th I don't think that's 
unsurprising. I also don't even think it's particularly wrong, but to pretend that you know it doesn't exist mm -hmm. is, I think, false. But this this sort of you know it's all the politicians' fault narrative. It's part of what we were talking about a bit at the beginning. This like you know let's gather around the campfire and and sort of play with our toy soldiers thing. It's simplistic. It has some truth to it, but it is it is simplistic. I think. Hello there, it's Peter here. Now, I hope you're enjoying today's conversation between Artemis and Simon, but a quick word from me about our partners, Ace Cultural Tours, in this break. Now, it's January, it's pretty cold and dreary outside, but here I am, sat in the warm, with a copy of Ace's beautiful brochure of tours for the year ahead in my hands, and it's a brochure full of delights. In March, for example, you can head off to Ravenna with them, the famous city of mosaics to absorb the Roman and Byzantine architecture. Or in May, you can discover the treasures of the wonderful art collections of Harvard and Yale on a tour through the great art collections of New England. If you're into music, then there's a tour to the Richard Strauss Festival in Dresden this April. Or if you just want to get some fresh air in the great outdoors, then there's a cultural trip to the county of Norfolk in June. In fact, in this catalogue, there's the details of more than a hundred different tours from the UK to Uzbekistan, from the USA to Sweden, and just about everywhere in between. So there's something for just about everybody. To have a look for yourself, head to their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Simon, let's go to your second scene in 2006. Um, where are we next? And again, if you could tell us if we were in a in a room in a place with a certain certain amount of people, where would we be? Yeah, so we're in Downing Street for this, and this is in the autumn of 2006. Um, and the two participants are Jonathan Shaw, who was then a, a two-star general, a major general, and Nigel Scheinwald, who was, I believe. Um, he was doing a big job in, he was a, he was a diplomat and he was doing a big job in, in number 10. I think he was foreign policy advisor. And just to kind of clarify this, I, I you know, how I gathered this information, I interviewed Jonathan Shaw uh, at length and I uh, had a lot of correspondence with him as well. Um, he was pretty open and helpful. Nigel Scheinwald refused to talk to me about this initially. And then, as often works when I was reporting, you know, in order to, to kind of dot the I's and cross the T's, I then went back to him and was like, look, this is the account that I've been given of this. And he then came back with some additional information. So I have I have kind of heard this from from both parties, but, you know, with with those caveats. And this is about how Britain got out of Iraq, really. So it's by, it's by 2006, it's three years post-invasion. And, you know, this is after this summer that we were talking about in Afghanistan, when suddenly it's become clear that this other operation is, is much more violent and intense than thought. And what the British did both in Iraq and Afghanistan throughout these conflicts, and with very problematically in many people's opinions, was that they rotated their entire command structures in the field every six months. So this was a policy really that had grown out of Northern Ireland, um, where some of the early tours in the Troubles were shorter, were four months. But it was it was really problematic because you you had no continuity of command in the field, and what it did do, on the other hand, and perhaps this is a reason why it endured, was it meant you could cycle a lot of people through prestigious field command jobs, and the British Army is very top heavy in in the number of people at senior positions and ranks it had, 
I mean, the, the cynical view of this was that, it, it, and this is not my phrasing, was that it was work experience for generals because it allowed you to put as many people possible through these jobs. But this meant that every six months there was an entirely new uh, headquarters in, in the field. And theoretically, they were controlled by a, an organization called PGHQ, Permanent Joint Headquarters outside London. But you know where exactly the nexus of decision-making was complicated. And it's also complicated because the, the sort of central code that the, the British military has as to how decisions are made. It's this idea called mission command, which is German originally. It's called Auftragstaktik in German. And this idea was that in order to create an army that can dynamically and rapidly respond to what is going on in the field, you push the locus of decision-making as far forward as possible. So, which makes sense, right? So, so commanders tell the people under them what their intent is, what they what state end state they wish to achieve, but they don't tell them the precise steps to do that. And it's a nice idea and it's a good and it's a solid idea, but the problem it constantly rubs up against is that the army is an authoritarian institution in which people like telling other people what to do. So anyway, so you, the, you know what you'd had over that summer in Iraq was that you'd had one headquarters we were in under a uh, general called Major Richard Sharef, who was a kind of charismatic, big-hearted uh, cavalry background general who had decided that he had to sort of restore the honor of the British army in Iraq. Uh, Iraq, where things were going very badly wrong, and wanted to mount this big clearance operation. And in the end, it hadn't been resourced properly, and it ended up being sort of slightly farcical on the ground. But then the next, and his his tour was sort of wrapping up, and the guy who was going to secede him was Jonathan Shaw. And they were almost the same age, they'd been at uh, the same university, they were, you know, they, they, they would have known each other. And Shaw is, as would always happen in these situations, and Shaw is, is a kind of intriguing man in many ways in that um you know he's a smart guy he'd been a done ppe at oxford he'd been a platoon commander in the falklands and in his platoon that you know i think five people had been killed he'd had as a young soldier a very real experience of of the gritty reality of, of war and he'd then been in the special forces world after that so a kind of aesthetic he'd been a director of special forces you know, you know, an impressive individual in many ways. And he has been doing his recce, been working out what he's going to do. And he comes in and has this meeting in number 10, you know, trying to to work out what he's been told to do. And he's, he's pushed for this meeting because in his view, it's very unclear what he has been told to do. And in his telling, when I spoke to Shaw, Shinewell says like, get Britain out of Iraq. And then I went, as, as I mentioned before, you know, I then went back to Shinewell and talked to him. And, and, you know, I'm just looking at what we said here. He said, um, you know, important as Jonathan was, it was never going to be his task to get Britain out of Iraq. That responsibility lay here up the chain of command. The question was never whether we wanted to withdraw, but how to do it, what conditions, political security, et cetera, could be put in place to make that feasible. So, you know, let's be clear, there are differing accounts of what this meeting took place. But essentially what happens is that under, when Shaw goes, and, and his tenure begins at the beginning of 2006, the approach is completely different to what the previous group was doing. So the previous, uh, you know, headquarters had been like, you know, let's be on the front foot, let's try and you know, do this. Now the steer, the steer that he's given is like, get us out. This is politically toxic. It's killing Tony Blair's premiership at home. And at this point, it sort of seems okay because it looks like the Americans are going to pull out as well. It's it's killing Bush's administration. In in the end of 2006, the very direction of travel is like, get out, withdraw. And so Shaw sort of thinks that Britain and the US are aligned. He goes off on holiday skiing at Christmas, comes back, and suddenly the Americans have developed this entirely new policy. And they're going to surge in resources. You know, they're going to try and try and win, essentially. And what that means is that when Shaw deploys, he is having to run a policy that is out of sync with that of their major ally. And what Shaw, and, and I think it is 
you know, fair to say this was his policy. What he does, he, he, he makes a deal. So, th- so there's a huge amount of violence in Basra at this time, particularly from Shia militias. And he asks his, his spies, essentially his, his MI6 detachment, to find him an interlocutor amongst the Shia militias that they can talk to. And it ends up being this guy called Ahmed al-Fartosi. And what is extraordinary and kind of why I, I wanted to bring this up here is that the end of the Iraq war for Britain essentially comes down to this situation of two people, a British two-star general and an Iraqi militiaman sitting opposite each other in a military position, prison, making a deal. And they do all these things that like they need to check that like this guy Fartosi actually has command over you know, the people in the field, they have to test him. And this is all in Chilcot. Like, it's an extraordinary, on our earlier point of like how documented this is, like there is, you know, I've actually, I haven't read all of Chilcot because, you know, that's not really feasible but i have read these sections and it's astonishing and they make this deal and and again this is why i think you know it's in one of these cases where non-fiction is so compelling and, and maybe sometimes more than fiction is it's a real faustian pact because the deal they make is that britain will release prisoners sequentially in order for a cessation of attacks on its bases and it which will allow them to withdraw without looking like they're being forced out but the real problem with this deal is that British leverage is finite. They only have a certain number of prisoners and, and you know, they're going to run out of leverage at some point. But what I found intriguing about writing this is, you know, this is, a, this is about a conflict that is huge and expensive and involves tens of thousands of people of multiple nationalities. But, but it focuses in at certain points on these, you know, these real kind of theatrical moments. I, I always think it's like a stage play. It's like, you know, two men across a table. That's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an amazing scene. Could you talk a bit more about the relationship between Britain and the US at this time? Um, this is a conflict that they'd essentially entered into together. How quickly did they start to diverge? What were some of the causes of that? I think that, you know, before 2003, the, the British military's identity was almost entirely built in binary opposition to the Americans. So, you know, they would define themselves by using different words, like we say recce, they say recon. And this idea that the Americans had mass, but we had kind of panache and skill. A lot of this view was very, you know, in retrospect, is really highly questionable. And it's also a kind of classic little sibling view of the institution. But it's certainly true that, you know, Britain arrived in Iraq kind of preaching its supposed capabilities in counterinsurgency gleaned from Northern Ireland and also from the kind of legacy of late imperial policing beyond that. And that then the British lost control of Basra. And what, you know, the Americans became very tired, I think, of being told by British people, like, this is what you need to do. And this is how it, you know, we need to do. And what, again, it's a very complicated story, but that whole episode with Jonathan Shaw, eventually, you know, he's, he's moved on and other commanders come in. But what eventually happens is that, you know, this deal doesn't really work, it collapses, um, and there, uh, there's an operation, eventually an Iraqi army operation to clear Basra, which then is preempted. It happens earlier than it's meant to, and it ends up happening when the British commanding general is away on a skiing holiday. And the it, it concludes with a, um, a US Marine general called George Flynn walking into a British headquarters. And again, his wording is, is disputed. I've interviewed Flynn, um, but, you know, there are people there to speak what he said but basically said you know we're here to stop you failing and this is an, for many people in the army and people who were there this is extraordinary because this is five years almost a day after the invasion of iraq when the, the, the british had gone in you know with a quite condescending and quite patronizing view towards the americans and here it had it had unraveled you know so i think there was a there's a real change i think the change endured i think very few people in the british military now would would 
behave or mouth the kind of sentiments towards the Americans that one would have heard 20 years ago. I also think that, you know, the American military is not a perfect institution and, you know, it has its own failings and its own difficulties. But that kind of, you know, that kind of like deeply British, slightly sneery transatlantic condescension, you know, that there was a lot of that about and it it didn't really work very well. Mm. That leads me on really nicely to the final scene that we're going to go to in 2006. Would you like to tell us where we are first and then we can talk about why why you've chosen to go to it as well? Yeah, sure. It's 28th of March 2006 and it is the creation of the, the Royal Regiment of Scotland. And I think as we, as we alluded to earlier, what, what I said is that we were talking in the book about these, these external battles, but this is about an internal battle. And really, it's an internal battle about how the army should be structured. But what's fascinating about it is that it is a, a battle that was in many ways as vicious, if not more vicious than these external ones. So again, to cut a, a long story short, the, the, the army is a British army is a federation, effectively. Historically, that the individual regiments predate the army. And they were raised individually by, you know, they were almost businesses, really, in the, in the 18th century. And then there was a lot of change and in the first and second world wars the army became a lot more centralized as it expanded so much but that particularly the infantry remained this kind of weird kaleidoscope of different regiments some of which were just one battalion so just one unit of 600 men with a geographical affiliation and rivals to each other and with a complex pecking order of both military elitism and kind of social snobbery and cachet between them and the, the way, the best description of it I've ever heard is that the, the army is a collection of tribes that gather around a totem pole that they take turns to polish, which is a sort of nice way to look at it. And what had happened in 2006 was that finally the, the infantry had been moved from this, this setup of small, in mostly, in many cases, small individual battalions into large units. And the unit in particular I was writing about was the Black Watch, uh, which was a Scottish regiment, a kind of socially prestigious Scottish regiment. And the way I wrote about this in the book is that they were involved in a difficult and, and violent operation in Iraq in 2004. Um, where people were killed, and it, it you know it was it was it was related to this thing with the Americans. They, this was the only time in the whole of the Iraq campaign that a, that a British unit op- beyond a mainstream British unit, not special forces, operated outside of, of southeastern Iraq, and it didn't go very well. And but then what was sort of extraordinary was that at the same time the unit was facing fighting this kind of rearguard battle to avoid being amalgamated, and there was some precedent for this because in the 1960s uh, when another round of amalgamation the retrenchment was going on the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders uh, another Scottish unit were in Aden uh, now in Yemen and they had a very telegenic commander who did lots of sort of dashing stuff and they avoided being amalgamated but anyway the what is sort of striking is that the Black Watch um really resisted this idea of amalgamation and and often people said it's because they thought they were better or or more kind of grand than the other scottish regiments and they fought it and fought it and and this thing when they finally had this amalgamation you know they regarded it as like a funeral so they served squid ink pasta in the officer's mess and and things like that the wives i think wear mourning clothes and all that kind of thing and the, the problem with this is is like it's, it's really quite counterproductive so at that you know this this set of amalgamations was forced across the the infantry at that time you know, it was not really within the gift of these individual units but there were some regiments that really embraced it so one particularly called the rifles which was this newly created regiment really embraced a collective identity and became popular and successful and the scots 
you know, they were really tribal about it. They didn't want to do this. And they had endless discussions about, you know, which of their 14 different kilts and stuff they would wear and, and all that kind of thing. And it's about, a, you know, it's a story about the, you know, I write about, you know, what is the value of tradition in the military? Like, you know, where where is it important? Where is it? Where is it not? What from the past is worth hanging on to and what is not? And again, a key figure in all of this is the, the a guy called James Cowan, who was the commanding officer of the Black Watch during this deployment in Iraq. And again, you know, fascinating, complicated figure, very capable in many ways, but also did epitomize in some ways the, the kind of Black Watch um, officer. And, you know, some people say that he really opposed this amalgamation and he didn't didn't embrace it and and things like that and that this but looking beyond him it's this question of like does regimental parochialism this focus on these small units blind people and the institutions as a whole to, to wider good you mentioned another regiment that was much more successful than the royal regiment of scotland um in in adapting to the kind of new system um which is the rifles, which is quite a well-known regiment. Even, even I had heard of that. Um, what makes one regiment more successful than another, and what made the rifles better suited to the new direction the British Army was going in compared to the Royal Regiment of Scotland? So I think I think within the infantry, particularly historically, and 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 I, I think up to recent recently, you could plot bits of the army on two. Uh, axes. So one was kind of how militarily elite they were, um, and at the far ends of that axis would be the the parachute regiment and within the army, and then the, the Royal Marines who were part of the navy, and then the other would be kind of how socially smart they were. So at particularly officer level, like you know, class is is in many ways the original sin of the army, and and did they have a lot of officers from very grand backgrounds and things? Interestingly, those two axes kind of meet at the end because the the SAS historically was kind of quite grand as well. But what what is intriguing with the rifles is that they went for a corporate identity, right? So they the the regiments that formed it were the, the Green Jackets and the Light Infantry, who um, were kind of within a, a broader framework already, but also the Royal IGBW, which was sort of less well regarded regiment, and then the Devon and Dorsets. So they all had these pre existing identities, but they decided like we're kind of basically jettisoning all that and we're just going to be the rifles the battalion's going to be one to five rifles we're going to you know we're going to embrace we're going to lean into this rather than fight it they then had had a series of very publicized and often quite bloody deployments in late Iraq and Afghanistan that centered the identity but it became it created a brand because what they recognized is you know you are recruiting young people you need to essentially to create a brand right and a brand that is recognizable whereas the the Scots which were you know kind of a lot of them are a reflection of a kind of Victorian fantasy of what Scottish life was like they I mean, the way the way I quote it in the book is one of these officers I write about his last job in the army is, is sort of being involved in this amalgamation. And he's having to deal with all this endless correspondence about like dress and which forms of uniform and what sporran you're going to have and, and all that sort of thing. And he's like, this is pointless. This isn't what this is like the last thing we should be organizing, not not the first. So it's um, yeah, the rifles created a successful brand, I think, is that is is how they how they did it you know that then creates cachet and then good people go towards them and it becomes a it becomes a self a self-reinforcing point um but you know it is this idea that that the army is this is this federation of, of uneasy uh sub institutions that are often in as competitive 
as a collaborative relationship with each other. Mm. And it's really interesting what you're saying about how the the regiment that's more successful is the one that's able to kind of completely reinvent itself, but the one that's less successful is the one that really holds on to tradition. When we think of the army as being almost a, pin, a pinnacle example of a kind of British institution that is incredibly um, conservative and slow moving and, and slow to change. And I guess that's one of the sort of major themes of your book, isn't it? That that tension with within the within the army. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think in many ways, it's not really army's fault, right? I mean, the kind of central theme I suppose the book explores is like, there are reasons why armies are rigid, right? Because they have to create these social structures that will work when people are tired, exhausted, frightened, all that kind of thing. That is what all the marching and shouting and polishing is is for. There are reasons and rationales for doing that. But because of that, uh, they find it very hard to adapt. And particularly because of what they do doesn't happen all the time, right? Because, you know, war is not constant for for western armies and so you know they they retreat they don't have exposure to their main thing and that that for any institution would be an enormously difficult thing to do but you have this 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 mixture of like necessary rigidity which comes at huge cost versus combined with your core business not happening all the time and that is a tremendously difficult line for any institution to do but it's also you know the there's a very quick turnover of people in the army now, you know, always, always, um, you know, it's a young person's institution. And so the experience of operations or of, of, of fighting, that will seep out very, very quickly. And it's then, and because something has to be erect in that place, you need legends and you need myths, right? And so that is why all these stories get told. And, and then what can be, I think, a bit dangerous is then when the opportunity comes to do it again, meeting meeting up or, or hitting some kind of supposed mythological legend or standard behavior and performance that may not have been real in the first place becomes extremely important mm. and that leads me on really nicely to the last question that i wanted to ask you before we head back into 2023 which is about we've spoken a lot about storytelling and myth making and even uh, in this um, bit of the book um, about the um, the last parade of the Black Watch that a chapter opens with the description of a play also called The Black Watch about these four Scottish soldiers who've just come back from Iraq and um, their experiences there. And you talk a bit about, about that. And it was making me wonder if you were to go and see or read or watch or listen to a kind of fictionalised account of the army or, or a piece of fiction that was going to accurately describe the army what would it look like? What would it sound like? What would it include? How much of there would there be the kind of the the coolness and the youngness and the dy- dynamism and how much of it would be the horror and the violence? I think there has to be both, right? I mean, I think that there, and I think it's a very difficult thing to do, particularly within the confines and the tradition of, of dramatic storytelling that that we have, you know? I mean, I think an interesting example here is is SAS Rogue Heroes, right? This this BBC production, which I have only watched a couple of episodes of, so I can't speak, you know, conclusively thereof. And I can see, you know, as a piece of television, it's very, very compelling, right? It was made by the guy who made Peaky Blinders, like it's it's sort of stylish and things. But I I only watched one episode and I found it difficult to watch more because I felt like, you know, I think that there is a level and a degree of nuance here that has been traded for, you know, conventional theatrical storytelling techniques and that is a bit of a shame and that actually you could have um you you didn't have to have 
you know, Dominic West in drag and and kind of like femme, you know, femme fatale character bolted onto the side and and stuff like that. And that you could have, I don't know, that you could have written something that was kind of raw and and it would have been like that. I think I think it's very very difficult to do actually, and you know, it, it requires a willingness, particularly with television, to like to look beyond the conventions of single episode dramatic arc and, and stuff like that. I mean, I think if, you know, the the bits of uh, certainly visual storytelling that I find most compelling in our culture now are these huge, ambitious, long-form drama series, right? And I think, you know, particularly because my new project is a lot about languages, I've been watching a lot of French and French and German stuff. But if you, you know, I think of something like the, the, um, Spiral or the Bureau, these extraordinary French stories, which are about institutions and, and paramilitary institutions. One about the DGCSE, the, the French external intelligence service, and one about the French police. And also Babylon Berlin, which is also about the police, but it's about the police in, in Berlin. And these are these are extraordinary productions that do not that get beyond I think what is glib. You know, they they're willing to look at, at human subtlety and the and the you know the the gradients of of how people become compromised and and you know how institutions work without having to wrap it and sugarcoat it within some like mid twentieth century British daring do, which I think is often what what we feel a requirement to do. Mm. Well, the final thing to ask you before we um, before we come to the end of our time traveling today is you're allowed to bring back a in a very desert island discs kind of fashion you're allowed to bring back a memento with you from 2006 if you were to bring back and it can be a physical physical thing it can be an item of clothing it can be letters well i was gonna say it'd be like a copy of a tabloid newspaper probably from from then i think i mean i did I, another memento that's not from them but i was given right at the start of the project and when i started working in 2013 a a world war one compass um by a, a woman i was dating at the time and it's a really beautiful thing it's like a brass sighting compass from 1917 and I could say that, like, during all the sort of difficulties that I had with this book, it, like, sat on my desk and I occasionally gazed at it and it gave me a sense of direction, but this would not be true. And I think, I, I strongly feel that writers should not make up that kind of... It makes me think of, there's a Martin Amis novel which has a, a character in who's a novelist who keeps a set of woodworking tools that he does not know how to use in order that when people come around to interview him, he can make spurious analogies between woodworking and writing. And I think like that sort of thing should, should not be done. So it's, I have that compass. It's a very beautiful thing. But to say that I often you know, gaze quizzically at the, the needles that face north and looked for help and inspiration would be incorrect. So let's, let's stick with that copy of the Daily Mirror or whatever it was. Nice. Well, Simon, thank you so much for speaking to me today on Travels Through Time about, about your amazing book, The Changing of the God, and about the year 2006. I feel much better informed about the state of the British Army than I ever have been before. Thank you so much for having me, Osmus. It's been great to talk. That was me, Osmus Irvin, speaking to Simon Acom about the year 2006 and his book, The Changing of the Guard, which is published by Scribe. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. And you can always check out our website, tttpodcast.com, where you can find more information about this episode and any of our others. But until next week, thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>